chapters. And especially for those of us who are pushing out into um, newer modalities, such as fully online, blended, and everything else that's in between. So, you know, the idea of bringing psychology to, to teaching challenges is not a new one by any means. I know you have some, some uh, scholars here at, uh, at Nebraska who are doing that very thing. Um, but even so, I think that even given all the calls to make what we do more evidence-based, to fit it into frameworks of learning science, still so much can get lost in translation. And I even feel that as, as a relative expert in this field. Um, it means that every year there are hundreds, if not more, findings that pile up like snowdrifts in journals. And it's very hard to know which are the most relevant and which can we really bring to bear on those challenges and questions that we have as teachers heavily invested in technology now. So that's one of the real focuses that I, that I try to bring to this, pulling out the most practical and the, the biggest guiding principles that we can use in doing things like planning our courses and planning our learning activities. So. I'm coming to you as a theorist, but also as a very, very practical person uh, by nature, and also because I do work with so many faculty teams in my other work in course redesign, in first-year learning, first-year learning initiative, and so forth. So that's what I have planned for you today. We're, we're actually going to frame this with some very practical, down-to-earth planning questions. The questions that I think are really helpful to have in mind as we go forward uh, with new courses, which I, I know we've already got our courses underway this semester, but there's always room to change and to bring in new activities and going forward in conversation with our colleagues about, about what we're going to do. So we're going to start with some planning questions. And then I want to pull out the three pieces of the cognitive psychology framework that I do think are the most important for teachers in all modalities to know about. But also we're going to talk about how those suggest um, and help us configure specific strategies and ways of using technology. And then we'll return to those planning questions at the end of our time here today. All right? So the questions, I say these are very down to earth. I really mean that. The first one is, of course, what we want students to know at the end of our course or learning experience, but more importantly, perhaps, what we want students to be able to do. So especially as we get up into those graduate courses, those pre-professional courses, it's not all about we want them to have some kind of familiarity with these, these pieces of knowledge. We want them to be able to carry them out. We want to be able to apply them effectively in specific contexts. So having that at the top of mind when we go into planning our learning experience is important. So what do we really want students to be able to do with what it is that we're presenting? But here's another really important perspective I think can, can help shape planning, and that is how we want students to be spending their time and that's not often a perspective that I believe we have when we're sitting and figuring out well, which chapters belong in this and how, what am I going to write into my syllabus for policies. How do we want students to spend their time? And especially when we are looking at fully online courses, that's most of what you have to work with, right? You don't have that kind of familiar fallback of the FaceTime you're going to have on this regular schedule. You've got students out there 
doing something, engaging with the information and the activities you've provided and asked of them. So we really need to think about how they're spending that time and what the return on that time is going to be. And if you believe, as I do, and many, I think most engaged teachers do, that student effort and productive effort spent is the basis for all success, then you can see why this is a really important thing to be thinking about as we choose what we're going to do. Everybody's favorite topic, assessment. Um, but, but yes, learning has to be measured along the way. But as we'll see, there are some ways to make this measurement of learning do double and triple duty to advance us towards some of the most important learning goals that students can have. So how are you going to measure student learning and how is that going to contribute to the learning itself? And then students learning from and with each other. As we all know, especially in online modalities, there are new ways for students to exchange ideas, form relationships. It shouldn't be a static, you know, here's the information in front of you. These are people communicating with other people. So that's the other thing we need to think about in our minds as we picture that student who's on the other end of the online course or who's taken our blended or hybrid course home with them. What are they learning from and with each other? Okay, so practical questions. Moving into then, does this map, into, map onto what I think cognitive psychology can bring to, uh, to teaching and learning? So three aspects that I think that really any teacher needs to have a, a great grasp of, and especially for online and technology-aided learning, are these. So first off, processes and mechanisms having to do with attention. And here's where I think that, that I have a slightly different perspective than a lot of the other frameworks that are out there, books you can pick up that are about the psychology of learning or cognitive science of learning, starting with attention. So, you know, as a cognitive psychologist, I have this perspective that whenever something interesting is going on in the mind, learning's happening or problem solving's occurring, change is occurring, that attention kind of gets there first on the scene. So this is a really, really vital um, aspect of cognition, and, and it sort of powers everything else that happens down the line. So I think it makes sense for us as teachers to use this as a starting point as well. So where are students' attention going, um, and, what are you, uh, and how are you going to, to capture that? And especially, as we'll see in a second when we talk about memory, it's hard to separate out attention from what students are going to remember. And speaking of memory, I mean, that's a bread and butter issue for a cognitive psychologist. It's where we've done most of our uh, high-profile research. And yeah, it's obviously very central to, to teaching and learning, which is not to say that memory for, for information, memorization, is the most important thing about learning or even one of the most important things. So, of course, again, any engaged teacher, anybody who's serious about this knows that there's a lot more to learning than memory. That said, I think more of us in the field are starting to say it's okay to expect students to have a base of content knowledge to work off of. And we are learning more about how that complements things like higher thought processes rather than detracting from it or competing with it. That said, remember that students do only have a limited amount of time and effort that they can put into learning. So it's a good thing that we, we know a lot of ways to make more memory happen in less time. 
right? So the memory piece, it's right there central in the middle. And then, yeah, the thought processes. If you ask engaged teachers what they really most want out of the work they're doing, it's this, right? So uh, if somebody comes to me and says, what do you really want your introduction to psychology students or your teaching practicum students or your graduate students to have at the end of your course, I want them to be able to think more like me as an expert in the field. I want them to be able to solve problems. I want them to have, you know, the habits of mind that go along with that. Uh, that's what I want. However, it's very, very easy to let content knowledge um, override and dominate this. So I think we, we do kind of intuitively on a gut level know that just knowing a lot of content about an area doesn't allow you to think like an expert in that area, right? Um, and yet it's very easy to fall into the trap of, of teaching as though that's true. So thinking skills. And the research in thinking um, converges on uh, the rather unsettling idea and finding that teaching thinking is a lot more difficult and takes a lot more time practice and repetition than we realize. So it's hard, we need to make space for it. Okay, so attention, memory, thinking. These are the three things that I think that can most advance us to, towards making great choices and planning our teaching and choosing our technology. So, highlights, key findings, thought-provoking questions from each of these areas. Starting first with, with that question of attention. So how do we capture student focus, use it effectively? What is attention all about and what gets in the way? Now, a funny thing about the study of attention in my field is that we don't have, I don't feel really good working solid definitions of what attention is. There's not just one attention spot in the brain. Um, attention researchers don't usually talk about it in terms of minutes, like here's your attention span, it's five minutes, 10 minutes. That's not really a, really a thing with attention researchers. But we have a really good grasp of what attention is for and what it does. So when we talk about somebody's attention or student's attention, that's all about prioritizing, right? So we have a limited um, amount of cognitive capacity and from on a millisecond to millisecond basis, we are directing and redirecting that to reflect the priorities we're, we're trying to address, right? So we might divide it, we might direct it all in, in one place, but it's about that prioritizing and allocation of resources. Attention is highly intertwined with memory. Uh, so for example, if you're familiar with the concept of working memory, how many uh, pieces of information you can kind of hold in immediate consciousness at a time. Um, current conceptions of that, some people believe that this is essentially the same as how many things you can pay attention to at once. So we're realizing that those are, are intertwined. There's also a, a kind of an old school of thought that I still think is, is quite valid, which holds that if uh, we're encoding or putting new information into memory, we're learning some new connection, uh, some new information, that that requires focused attention. That essentially, for all intents and purposes, learning by osmosis, learning in the background, learning you didn't realize happened, that, that almost never occurs. So attention is required in order to get new information into, into mind and into memory. 
So what gets in the way of this? A couple of things. So in teaching, um, there's been a very influential idea called cognitive load. How many people are familiar with that or have heard of that before? Okay, great. So this is not, not anything for, for this group. Right, and you know, there's a whole rather, rather complex theory around cognitive load, but um, in a sense, part of it can be summarized by saying that you know, there's, there's multiple things going on in any learning task, right? There's uh, the so-called germane demands or germane de uh, load of, uh, of the learning task. That's how much attention, cognitive capacity, is taken up just by learning uh, about classical conditioning, say, or how to work out a calculus problem. But then there's tacked onto that some other demands and that drain off that limited capacity. So for example, uh, I'm trying to work this problem out, but the instructions for my homework are over here and I have to keep switching back and forth. And how does this discussion tool work in this, in this LMS anyway? Those two things come out of the same common uh, uh, pool of resources and one competes with the other. And sometimes, with better design, we can address that so-called extraneous cognitive load. So too much going on at once, uh, too much that's not intrinsically tied up with the learning. Here's another, though, that I think can be very thought-provoking for us as teachers, and that is the concept of automaticity. So when we learn certain things, we're carrying out a task, there's certain pieces of it that we can overlearn to where they no longer take as much out of um, our pool of resources, right? So a, a great classic example is when we learn to drive, right? So when everybody learns to drive, um, listening to the radio, figuring out where we are, even carrying on a conversation, it's all too much because we haven't automated a lot of the processes involved in driving, which is, of course, not to say that driving can be done on autopilot. It can't. There's um, novel aspects of the driving task that, that come at us all the time. But pieces get automated, and that frees up other resources to do other things. Well, what if we start thinking about this in context of our teaching? So what tasks, skills, processes can students overlearn to where they don't um, pull as much out of that, out of those resources? So um, I want to throw this out to the group, actually, to think, think about for just a second not in a big table discussion, but let's gather maybe a couple of examples of things in your discipline that you think students can and should have overlearned, have them down pat to where they don't take up a whole lot of resources anymore. What do you think? Okay, effective note-taking. Right? If you're skilled, you can take the notes and still be processing the information at a high level. Lower levels, level students can't, right? Okay, that's a good one. Skills we ask for students, you know, we want them to learn, learn the math so that they're familiar enough that they can think about what the math means. Learning the math, you're enough to know what the math means. Really profound application. Do we have... Maybe one more? Accessing files. We're in computer science and engineering, and there's a surprising number of students who don't really know how to use a computer. They know how to get over here now. <laughs> okay, this is in the engineering part. Exactly, right? And, 
you know, there's, there's this philosophy that, well, everything's on Google. You can look everything up. Why memorize anything? Well, because when you get to where you need to function as a professional or a pre-professional or be thinking about higher level aspects of what you're doing, uh, that's not going to work. So uh, I know from my work with um, an electrical engineer who used to work at NEU, Elizabeth Brower, brilliant teacher, um, we, we would just go around and around about what was getting in the way of her student's success in circuit analysis. And she would say, well, there are these principles like, Ohm's law, which I have to admit, I still don't quite understand, but uh, Ohm's law, you're going to need it over and over. You need to have it. Yes, you can go look it up. If you have to look that up every time, you are not going to last as an electrical engineer. So when we haven't automated certain processes, that's going to make uh, something play out differently because of the demands on attention. And lastly, there's this uh, thing I've perhaps tactfully called dysfunctional multitasking, which you can probably guess what, what I mean by that. Um, that can itself be driven by mistaken beliefs about attention, right? Even if we understand that learning doesn't take place by osmosis and that attention is really needed for it, our students may not. And so they make choices to have that video running at the same time I'm in my online course and doing the discussion and I'm texting three of my friends at the same time, right? When that happens, attention's overloaded, and learning's, learning's going to fall through. We may not even realize it until it's too late. So thinking about some applications. So one of the most surefire ways to keep pulling attention back to the task at hand is having to respond, right? So we learn this when we teach face-to-face. -face, we learn to call on students. Um, and even in large classes now, there's, uh, this is one of the big functions that something like a student response system can, can accomplish. And this is what students, for example, have told us in our surveys at, at NAU and big classes that use clickers is, you know, I didn't always love the clicker, but at least it kept bringing me back, bringing my attention back to what I was doing. Um, but fully online, I think we need to think about that as well. So those very, very text-heavy designs are often criticized as if it's the text that's the problem, and I don't think that's necessarily true. It's that students are having to read and read and read without having to put something back in, of saying, here's what I thought about this, here's what I gathered from it, here's what I understood from it. Um, and we don't have, so doing things like building in lots and lots of stop out and weigh in questions, even if we're, we're just going to spot grade those or have some other way to make it not an overwhelming grading test, the point is in having students respond, having them do it. The human, uh, human mind is not set up to simply monitor and take in lots and lots of information without having to do something with it, right? When that happens, the, the mind is almost guaranteed to wander automating those lower level processes. So thinking about what kind of learning activities can we set up for some students or maybe even the students who just need them to make sure that they've got Ohm's Law down pat, that they've got the math that they need for this class, not just, eh, we're, we're sort of there, but I can do it without having to think about it too much. Um, in the case of uh, Elizabeth Brower's class, one of the things that we did is we used the affordances of the learning management system and online homework to actually take speed into account with some of the homework. I know a lot of times with homework we're saying, hey, spend more time on it, but this was a case where we said, you know what, this is reinforcing something like Ohm's Law. Every problem is going to ask you to use that. 
So the final grade you get uh, takes into account not just your best attempt, like your best score, but how quickly you did it. Right? So there are some cases where we may even want to do that, incentivize speed. And opening those dialogues with students about, um, about the dysfunctional multitasking and the beliefs that they have about attention and memory. You know, and, and there's been a, a lot of kind of discussion and debate about this in, in uh, the higher education community. A lot of it, I notice, comes down to, oh, should we ban laptops in classes? Should we, should we let students use their phone? You have the people who say, oh, you know, get them involved with the devices, and other people saying, no, they have to write everything out on paper, nothing else will do. And this is kind of, uh, it's kind of hilarious if you teach fully online, right? Because are you going to go home with them? No, you need to teach them to be better stewards of their own attention, right? So they can make the choices. So, and especially if, if uh, a few of them still kind of cling to this idea that, well, we're, we're digital natives, we're used to having lots of streams of information all at once, it's like, no, that, that doesn't excuse you from fundamental limitations and how much the mind can take in, and the fact that we do not learn by osmosis. And so I wanted to share with you just um, one example of uh, how we've tackled this at NAU, and this is an approach I think that is flexible enough to, to tailor for just different institutions as well. So with this idea that students need to know more about how attention works and how it's related to memory, we set up what kind of functions as an institution-specific MOOC. It's a BB Learn um, sort of mini course that's no credit and it's no cost and anybody at NAU can self-enroll at any time. And, and I, I kind of run it and monitor it. So it's called Attention Matters. And it isn't just kind of a website with here's information about, you know, you can't multitask and here's don't have your phone out in class. We, we sort of show them and tell them. So we've, we've pulled in some different online videos that show things, uh, for example, like the change blindness effect, if you've never seen that one demonstrated. It really get it, it, it uh, is very, very memorable in and of itself. Um, it, there are self-assessments and discussions where students talk about the reactions to those activities. And importantly, at the end, we ask them to kind of put together very briefly what their own plan is for managing attention, managing distractions in class, managing uh, distractions while they're doing their homework. So we've taken the, um, we've really put this out there to try to draw them into this dialogue and into this question so that they can be more involved with it. And at this point, we've had about a thousand students go through this. Why do they do this? Well, because uh, different faculty around the institution offer a little bit of extra credit at the beginning of the semester for doing it. So we have a lot of faculty who feel that this is an important issue. They're not cognitive psychologists themselves, so they, they don't want to stand up and try to teach a class on it, but this resource is there for them. And that combination of addressing faculty concerns, um, bringing in a, a subject matter expert who's willing to kind of run the experience and having students go through this, is we feel a positive step towards bringing this, uh, bringing this into, into dialogue and into the curriculum at NAU. All right, moving on to some highlights about memory. So I think that as teachers, what can be very helpful for us is to do what, is to start thinking about memory differently, similarly to how memory experts have changed their thinking about it in recent years. So instead of thinking of memory as a place where we put stuff, you know, a big bucket for, for information, we now think of 
uh, of memory more in terms of what it does for us. It's an adaptation that helps us accomplish our goals. And when you think about it that way, it becomes a lot more clear why we remember certain things and we forget others. It also helps us kind of remember that memory is very context dependent. Memories don't pop into mind just because we want them to. They pop into mind because they're cued by other things. So cues and context are very critical to what we remember. And we have known for a very, very long time in psychology that what you do with information is as important as anything else in determining whether you remember it, the so-called depth of processing effect. And how many people have heard of this one before, depth of processing? All right. So um, essentially that if you think about information in terms of its meaning, especially its meaning as it relates to you, it's a lot more likely to, to stick than information you think of in terms of its surface characteristics, which if you go back to memory being an adaptation that helps us accomplish goals and survive, that makes a lot of sense, right? We should hang on to things that we think of in relation to ourselves and forget other things. So some other good take-home principles. Um, there's also, you know, the quirk of the human cognitive system that vision is the really highly salient and highly memorable for most people. So if you uh, ever run across the book um, Moonwalking with Einstein, for example, and it's a great book. I, I hate that it was written by a journalist and not a psychologist, but it's, it's well worth a read. Um, he describes in that book how uh, competitive memory champions this is what they're almost always doing to do things like uh, memorize a deck of cards or a series of numbers. They're using a visualization technique. So that's worth kind of tucking away and saying, yeah, vision is really, uh, really worth, it, worth more memory for, for most people. But at the same time, it doesn't come down to um, so-called perceptual learning styles. So it's not a matter of, oh, some students are visual learners and we have to match that style. Uh, that's an idea that, uh, has been pretty thoroughly, at least within cognitive psychology, has really been critiqued and some people believe debunked. So don't worry about matching styles. Remember that vision, visualizable information, things you present visually are going to have a, a better road to memory than other things for most people. All right, and, and lastly, there's what I've come to call uh, just the big three in applied memory research. So when we look at the, the large body of research that really tests what do people recall in realistic situations, uh, such as class material, here's the three that really flow to the top. First of all is the testing effect, which also sometimes goes by the term retrieval practice. Now, another show of hands, how many people have heard of that testing effect? Okay, about a third. Okay, so the testing effect is, is really exciting for its implications for teaching, especially teaching with technology, where it's possible to quiz people much more frequently and in lots of different ways than we ever could before. So it, the finding goes like this, the principle goes like this, that when you take a quiz or a test or a test-like activity with material, you actually work with it in that specific way, trying to respond to a quiz question. That um, has a better impact on your ability to recall it later than virtually anything else you could do at that time, period. It especially is a, gives you a much bigger return than the favored student strategy of rereading. So that's when students say they're, they're studying, we're sending them home and they're studying, 
That's sometimes what they're doing. They're rereading, rereading, rereading. That gives you a wonderful sense of familiarity. You feel like you're making all this progress, but the research shows that, no, that's, that's probably not giving you what you could by just shutting the book and taking a quiz on the information. Okay. And so this is not just one or two findings that, that made it into a journal. This is stacks and stacks and stacks of findings um, done across lots of different conditions, lots of different ways of going about giving tests and so on. So the testing effect, retrieval practice is a big one. There's also the spacing effect, sometimes called distributed practice, which holds that um, study time gives you better return in terms of memory the more finally you split up your study session. So if I have two hours to study for a quiz, I'm going to get more out of it if I split that up into two one-hour sessions or four half-hour sessions or even, even more fine-grained than that. And, you know, this is in many ways good news for students who are juggling coursework. They don't have the time, even if they were inclined to go to the library for eight straight hours for a big cram session, they couldn't do it. There's kids, there's jobs, there's other classes. And this says, well, you know, the 15 minutes that you spend um, at soccer practice or waiting for the bus could pay off as much as half an hour more that you, that you spend studying some other way. So the spacing effect. And lastly, interleaving. Now, interleaving is more of a newcomer to the scene. It's much less well-established, but there's some exciting newer work that's been coming out on this. Now, interleaving only applies to a couple of specific uh, types of learning tasks or, or subjects. It applies specifically when we're having to tell categories apart or when we're having to distinguish and use different problem, uh, different solutions, different ways of solving problems. So, for example, in a stats class, uh, am I going to use a chi-square, t-test, or an ANOVA for given problems? When there's that sense of kind of alternation, this, this principle applies. And I'll, I'll tell you about it in a second, but real quick. Um, is anybody teaching or have an example of um, that kind of learning task where students have to learn to categorize something they're seeing or encountering? They have to tell this kind from that kind. Does anybody have that experience in their teaching currently? Yes. I would posit that all of property law and tax law is that. Is this a lease? Is it a lot? Is it a property interest? Depending on, I describe it as the Hogwarts sorting hat. Depending on which way right. you land, then you know where you go, but you've got to land on the right spot first, otherwise everything's messed up. Great example. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to show you this because it's easier to show you than tell you about it um, with a very different example, but I think you're spot on. So let's say that students are in an art history class and they're studying um, Impressionism and we got to tell our Van Goghs from our Manets from our Monets, right? So, a couple ways I could go about this as a student. I could try, go through and really get my Van Goghs down, then move on to all my Manets and all my, all my Monets. I could do that. Or, I could study by shuffling them, okay? kind of alternating them all at once. Now, I would posit that most students are going to go with the former strategy, and it feels more organized to do it that way. Uh, you feel like you have a better grasp of the problem, and I bet a lot of your students are like, I'm going to study the property law first. I'm going to study all of my leases. Total silo. Right. So the interleaving effect finds that in most cases, you do better with this. Students hate it. 
but this is going to give you a better return, right? So testing, spacing, interleaving, that's what's out there in the literature. How do we bring this into teaching with technology? First of all, I feel like we're really missing out if we don't really harness this testing effect. And it's important to tell students about it, right? Um, so they can, they can know as well, but even so, we can't leave it just onto them to make sure that they go home and use this incredibly powerful time-saving tool. So things like importing the whole test bank, as we did in one of our psychology courses, out of, out of the textbook, the whole thing, and having pre-class uh, reading quizzes that are repeatable. We tell students, you just keep your highest grade. So even if you've done perfectly on this reading quiz, you should do it again. Who, who would ever do that? Well, because the quiz helps you learn. Okay. So building in those frequent, small stakes um, quizzes, tools and resources that fe feature quizzing, things like Quizlet. There's an app whose entire raison d'etre is to make quizzing and even student-generated quizzes easier to do. You can put it in, it's mobile-friendly so that the student can be at the bus stop taking the quiz to get that foundational material that they need to come in and do higher thinking when they're actually in my class or actually coming back to my online discussion. We may have to market it to students, right? They come in thinking of tests as the way that I know what you learned instead of part of the learning itself, but they can really come around once you pull back the curtain and say, this saves you time and this is why we do it. Similarly with the, with the, um, Spacing or distributed practice effect. I mean, online teaching gives us so much control over when students have to engage in these activities. So when we have a choice of breaking it down and staggering it or massing it all together, I think it's pretty clear which way we should go, right? And interleaving as well. So if I am making a practice activity or a practice exercise that students have to go through, I can be in control of this. And then when students push back and say, can't, can't we just do one at a time? You can tell about the interleaving effect. And other kinds of powerful processing. Remembering that depth of processing is so important, we can push that in the kinds of discussion topics that we open up. Asking students to explicitly tell me, how did this relate to you? How are these two things similar? That's the kind of processing that is memorable, and providing, taking advantage of online teaching to really incorporate rich media. Things like animated diagrams that show a process unfolding, or uh, multimedia that students can interact with to really explore something. And here's, here's just a little bit of, uh, I'll editorialize just a little bit and say that I think that we should lean on our publishers um, and our content providers to do this, because these kinds of media are very expensive and hard to produce sometimes, I'm not saying we should build these into the course necessarily from the ground up, but I think that this is something where faculty demand could push for more and better materials. All right, so moving on to our, our last piece here, the thinking piece, the piece that we want so much, but that is so hard to actually accomplish sometimes. So, you know, thinking is an intentionally broad term to a cognitive psychologist that, that includes everything from the formal reasoning um, that you might see in a logic or a math class to the problem solving you'd see in an engineering class, even analogies and everybody's favorite critical thinking, which means different things to different people, but we also, almost all of us really, really want. 
So, so that's fine. There's a lot to it. But even across all these very diverse areas, some things that tend to be generally true um, are as follows. So thinking skills are, unfortunately for us, a lot more context-specific than we may realize. So, you know, while most of us are trying to build kind of general purpose thinking skills that students can use in this class, the next class, and their whole life, and I, that's a great goal, human thinking tends to not work that way naturally, right? We tend to think in an area. We tend to be able to reason in a certain content area, and it's very hard for us to push that into the next thing. And this issue of transfer is, after all, I mean, that goes to the real heart of what we're trying to do as educators. If it doesn't transfer, then it's essentially not learning. And it, time and again, we tend, to get, we tend to be surprised by how little transfers, not even, sometimes not even to the next module, let alone the next class or the student's life. So here, too. Uh, who can throw out an example or two, not to get too negative here, but who can throw out an example of a time when you were just really surprised at what students didn't transfer? Saying, we, we learned this guy, and this guy's the expert, you can see that, but it just didn't make it to the next thing. It's like you were starting all over. Who can give us a good example? Yeah. I taught back-to-back five-week classes and had some students in both of them, and two weeks apart different classes they just lost wow okay and students who were kind of functioning and doing okay in the, yeah. in the former experience and it's it's even the same person okay and like the same person's in front of you it's the same stuff and sometimes it's a memory issue but it may also be a transfer issue that's what your mind is trying to do is give you the skill that you needed in the place where you needed it but that's what gets in the way of transfer um do we have another example so he taught literally two, two experiences, two, same group of students, and sound, felt like they went backwards, right? So transfer is going to be a more difficult problem than we realize. And I think just having that in mind can help us see it and set more space aside for it and be thinking about this harder in our, in our class planning. Um, there's no magic bullet as far as transfer, but here's some things that do help. So focusing on the underlying structure of problems. So this is really what gets in the way of transfer, right? Is we change up the surface characteristics of a problem. We, the experts, know that underneath it's the same kind of problem. But you change a little bit of the surface characteristics and it falls apart. Well, to get over that, students need to be in that situation over and over and over where it's the same underlying principles, you tweak the details, the surface details, and they have to practice with it. So over time, they can use that to start being able to drill down to those underlying principles. And also in the feedback and guidance we give them in problem solving to say, all right, let's work on separating out. What are some of the surface details of this problem that don't matter? And what are the underlying principles? And making them consciously do that can also be helpful to get over the transfer issue. Now, critical thinking, there, there's now growing up a whole, um, a whole literature just around the teaching of, of critical thinking. And we are going to unpack all the principles around that because it, it really is, as we've gotten into it, we realize what a complex problem this is. 
And I know it, it can be a real beginner's mistake to underestimate just how hard it will be to teach critical thinking in your class. I know when I was a beginning psychology instructor, you know, critical thinking, very, very important to learn in psychology, right? I want them to be able to tell causation from correlation and think about, you know, empirical ways of explaining human behavior. Great. Well, we, had, we had two whole days to do critical thinking. And boy, I taught critical thinking and then I thought they could do it at the end of that. No, this is something that you have to be in the, in the habit of and practicing over and over and even then it can easily fall through. Now, one of the things that I think can help us is just to have a good working definition in our minds going forward of what does critical thinking mean for me in this class, in this discipline. Um, because it's really not dictated by, you know, a formal working definition. And I think, that's, I think that's fine. Critical thinking naturally looks different in an engineering class than in a psychology class than in a, than in a law class. But we have to be at least clear on what our definition is and what that means, what it looks like to us going forward. And we have to, to know that this is going to be perhaps the most difficult uphill battle we will face as teachers. Um, we could have all kinds of good conversations, I'm sure, after this event on just what the barriers to critical thinking are. It's effortful. It asks us to sometimes ignore beliefs that we already have and learning we, we think we already have. There's all sorts of things that get in the way. And if you think about it, it's also a cueing issue. So it's not just knowing how to tell causation from correlation, for example. It's knowing when to do that. So even if a student can perfectly, on my final exam, distinguish correlation and causation and the problem I give them, if they're reading through their news feed the next day, they may not be in that same mode where they, uh, where they opt to apply that, mo that mode of thinking. So, applying the principles. So, here again, thinking back to what we want students to be able to do and making sure we're consciously countering our natural tendency to focus on content, all right? It's not all about what chapters, what policies, should we include this or that? What are the students needing to do and making sure that our learning activities that we have incorporated are really well aligned to those skills? So I can't tell you how many times I've sat with faculty groups and, and said, okay, what are some of the skills you want students to have that they're not getting? Oh, critical reading. Right? We really want them to be able to, to read critically. They can read, but even if they do it, they don't really get extract the main points. Okay, so what exercises do you have built into the class that make them accountable to do critical reading and to maybe even do it with each other so they can all compare their work? Oh, we don't have anything. We assign the reading. They go home with it, and then they don't get it. So that's an example of uh, aligning our learning activities to the skills we want. And something like group annotation tools, even a Google Doc, can help us help students and make them accountable to make their thinking visible and let them work together on that skill. Using the affordance of technology to present as many problems as students are going to need to master those skills, right? So creating those large banks of problems like we did with the Ohm's Law homework where it would permute and they would get what looked like a different problem every time, but still reinforcing that same underlying skill. It's obvious to see how we can do that in an engineering or a math class, but maybe we need to be doing that in other disciplines as well. Quizzing as well turns out to be kind of a twofer or even threefer. 
because there's some evidence that when students are frequently quizzed on information, they're better able to transfer it when they go to use it. So that's yet another plug for, for quizzing and retrieval practice. And then using scenarios. Remembering that human thinking is so context-driven, especially if we're teaching in an applied field where students need to be able to use this in a real environment, that's what they need to be simulating as much as possible in their learning. So things like case studies, role-playing that takes place within a discussion board, students can really get into these. Even if you don't have uh, a lot of props or, or other realism, if you assign roles and tell students, here are your goals and you need to play this out, that can be a realistic experience. There are also discipline-specific tools that can simulate important experiences or principles within a discipline. Um, in mine, for example, there's Sniffy the rat. He's a little animated rat. He lives in a little box, and you can train him with little virtual pellets. And thousands and thousands of psychology students have now used Sniffy to learn about learning principles and training. So there may be a tool like that in your discipline that can get students involved in virtual application of these skills that, that you want them to have. And even when we use a very low-tech approach, I'll just tell you one, uh, one great example that I've gleaned from a colleague of mine who works at uh, SUNY Oswego. She teaches an advanced course in design for the web. And there are a lot of things that she teaches in this class, but one of the things she wants students to be able to do is not just build a good website to meet a client's needs. They need to get feedback from the client and learn to navigate some of those client relationships. So she has this virtual client component to the class, which goes like this. Um, so students, of course, when they're assigned to build a website, they get a little bit of background on the company it's for, and is it a nonprofit or profit, all that good stuff. But they also get a client that goes with it. And that client doesn't just have a list of needs, they have a persona. So she created a backstory for each of these clients. And this is a really cool piece of realism. Each of those clients has an email address that's specific to them. And she role plays this client with every student. And so instead of sitting down and emailing my professor about my work I did, I email my client, Sally Smith, and depending on Sally's persona, she may like it, she may not, she may like it, but then give you some unclear directions. She says that this is so realistic that every now and again, one of her students comes to her to complain about their client. <laughs> so I can't believe she said that. And she's like, remember, that's actually me. So it's not high technology. It's not that complicated, but it's creative. And it gets to the heart of simulating what she wants her students to be able to do with all this web design that she's teaching them. So we can think about exercises like that. So I know from working with faculty groups that better than answers are questions. So here are some more questions that I want to, to leave you with today to talk to your colleagues, each other, and your instructional design team as we advance forward in these different modalities. What do we want them to be able to do? Well, let's think about thinking skills. Let's worry about transfer. Let's see if we can piece out certain parts to be automatic and overlearn to where they no longer are pulling that much out of students' resources. How do we want them to spend their time? How are they going to be focused during that time? How are you going to make sure that that time is spaced out so that they get uh, more return on what they're investing? 
how are you going to be sure that the time they spend really does tie into the goals that they're trying to accomplish since that is such a driver of memory? Measuring student learning in ways that take advantage of the testing effect and retrieval practice, right, so that assessments themselves serve to deepen and advance learning since we know that they can. And lastly, getting students learning from and with each other in ways that reinforce these important things like thinking skills. In particular, discussions. We know that those are so powerful for building things like critical thinking. And you can do so much more in an online discussion than you can in a face-to-face -face discussion. And lastly, a question that gets well out of cognitive psychology, but I hope starts some good conversations with your colleagues. How do we create the online communities and get students engaged in ways that help them uh, get the benefit of all these other learning activities we set up for them. All right, we're gonna wrap it up right there. And thank you so much. All right, time for questions. I was wondering if uh, you had an example, uh, perhaps out of the world of mocks, of perhaps a mock or two that might be the best mapping of what you've told us here today into a best practices. Do you have any mocks, perhaps, that you've served to look at, do the best job of incorporating what you've said today? Mm, all right, tell me a little bit more about mocks. What do you mean by that? Oh, please. Just a publicly available online course. Right, okay. Um, right. Oh, that's, it's such a one because is there, you know, I think the, the online, uh, okay, so Carnegie Mellon's project with their, with their online courses, their adaptive courses, now at Stanford, Candace Teal's project. I think that's been the most grounded in research um, they've done the best job at making the things publicly available and in theory, you know, it's driven by um, tweaking uh, the materials based on how students do in them. I think that's by far the most evidence-based book that's out there. That said, um, they don't always, they don't always look as splashy as some other offerings. So you can't always tell because they're built on these principles that you can't really see. You can't see why is it presenting this question? Why are we doing this activity at this time? It just may look like um, any other collection of, of materials. And I, I think that they've done a good job at trying to flow it out beyond math and science. So I think that's where something like adaptive courseware, um, that's the most obvious uh, application, and it's, it's relatively easy to say, well, here's the progression of this should lead to this, should lead to this. It's easy to, relatively easy to assess. So they've tried to push it out into things like language learning, English and writing. Um, but I think Teal herself has said, yeah, that, that's always gonna be more of a challenge. So I think that those are some of the, uh, some of the, questions that I'd look at and saying, what, what is out there that's, that's really, really good? But 
I worry that we're kind of losing steam and pushing forward for even more and better offerings. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. 50. Okay. What strategies would work better in these environments? Okay. So, yeah, a large, uh, and tell me, is there, what's the nature of the interaction that students are doing with the material and with each other right now? How would, how would you characterize it? In VT, I think we have a lot of yeah. group discussions and yeah. whole class discussions, but discussion boards get a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do, especially if we give them a very open question like debate such and so. Um, I think much as we would do in a face-to-face -face class, um, well, National Center for Academic Transformation has this, has this great catchphrase called small within large. So dividing the experience and the connections that students have so they are themselves interacting with a smaller group of peers or perhaps in more targeted questions. So that's one way to, to divide and conquer in a larger class like that. Because I, I agree, I mean, I moderate the Attention Matters boards where we just, it's very, very simplistic. And yeah, you wake up and there's 150 new posts and it's kind of, it's kind of going all over the place. So maybe not all the students have to interact with all of the other students. And maybe they don't all have to interact with each other in the identical ways to do that. Um, and I, I'm also a fan of discussion boards that ask students to solve a very specific problem or that, that narrow it down more than we traditionally seem to do with the discuss and, and debate types of boards. So, so that's one way to do it. And lastly, I think we putting in the time up front to make something like a bank of problems, a bank of questions that then runs either semi-automated or without a whole lot of intervention from you is a great, great investment because just because it's large, we don't want students to miss out and have a superficial experience. They still need to be practicing, practicing, practicing and seeing if they can get mastery. And so automating that of making sure that they're, they're really getting into, into what they need to be learning or applying and accountable to reaching standards. Um, that's something else that I would look at in a, in a class that's relatively large like that. Yeah. Are there any questions from them? Uh, Walt Hamilton wants to know if there's a way that we can access the attention course that you mentioned. Oh, okay, good. Um, so Attention Matters is very much kind of, we call it pilot, beta, and, and everything else. We, it's, um, uh, but I do share materials with people. I usually do with just a Dropbox link. I don't post it because I kind of like to know who has it and, and make sure that they know how to get back in touch with me if they need any help. But um, it's available as uh, BB Learn Archive, and also I've pieced the materials out, so you can just take parts of it. You can take the assessments, you can take the ideas for discussion questions, or the written materials that we have for students, and you're absolutely welcome to do that. So go ahead and email me, and I can give you a link to that. Well, let's thank um, Dr. Miller for coming. <laughs> Uh, 
And I want to thank everybody that's in the room for coming today and those that are on the webcast. Um, there um, is some information on your table. The 2017 Spring Teaching and Learning Symposium is March 3rd. Um, the list of instructional designers that can help you as you think about course redesign in any format, face-to-face, -face, blended, web, um, fully online, some online, um, whatever you want to do, the instructional designers can provide that assistance to you. Um, also, the evaluation is on the table. If you'd fill that out, I would appreciate it. We will. We have been recording this. We will follow next week with a re link to the recording and um, any um, other kinds of resources that we've identified for this particular um, talk topic. Um, thank you very much for coming. Have a good rest of the afternoon and a good weekend.